A spike in gun violence. The numbers are rising and it's very scary out there. The growing body count tied to gangs and a disturbing discovery at a Surrey elementary school. BC's expanded vaccine mandate. I think a lot of people thought maybe it would never happen because of where we are in the pandemic. A wide range of healthcare workers now ordered to get their shots and the potential impact if they don't. And Crown prosecutors making the case for themselves. If we're not treated fairly, then prosecutors, like everybody else, could leave. The contract dispute they say could give criminals the upper hand. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. We begin with the recent surge of gang violence and shooting deaths in Metro Vancouver, prompting authorities to issue a plea for more tips from the public. Catherine Urquhart has more on the disturbing uptick and a frightening discovery at a Surrey school just this afternoon. On the grounds of Surrey's Bothwell Elementary School, students find a handgun. Fortunately, no one was hurt. Police are now determining if it's linked recent string of gang incidents. I'm a little worried about it when I saw the email, but, um, you know, just want my kid to be safe. Only a few blocks away, a man and a woman were found shot, discovered Tuesday in a vehicle. Both were rushed to hospital. The victims are known to police, and I can also tell you that this uh, shooting is related to the lower mainland gang conflict. The man has since died from his injuries. Thursday morning, a man's body was found in the 1800 block of 224 Street in Langley. Members of IHIT, the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team, say this likely wasn't a random act. We've had 20 shootings uh, over the past six weeks and four deaths. Last month, two men were seriously injured in a targeted shooting near 122A Street and 80B Avenue. A torched vehicle found in Delta was linked to the shooting, and police confirmed the incident was gang-related. In Delta recently, a man was fatally shot in a house in the 11800 block of 92nd Avenue. Members of the emergency response team were called to attend. The victim was well known to police. It was believed to be targeted and no risk to the public. The escalation in violence is prompting Crime Stoppers to remind people they can provide information safely online, using an app, through social media, or by phone. Crime Stoppers offers people the opportunity to report anonymously. No one will ever know who you are. As for the children at Bothwell Elementary discovering a handgun on school grounds, police say it's concerning and shows a blatant disregard for the safety of others. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Now, police will not say if that handgun found at Bothwell Elementary was loaded or not, only that they are thankful no one was hurt. Just one day after the B.C. Coroner Service announced a record number of overdose deaths in the last year, police say three people have been charged in connection with a major seizure of illicit drugs. As Kylie Stanton reports, $30 million worth of fentanyl, other drugs, cash and guns were seized in Project Juliet. Mass amounts of suspected fentanyl, methamphetamine, cocaine, and ecstasy. The street value, roughly $30 million. The lives saved after seizing it, priceless. Estimated at over $3 million 
965,000 lethal doses. Now, thanks to a joint investigation dubbed Project Juliet between the Victoria Police Department and the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit of BC, an organized crime group trafficking the drugs has taken a major hit. On February 8th, the Public Prosecution Services of Canada approved criminal charges against three individuals. 34-year-old Brian James Bala is facing eight charges. Vu Bao Nguyen, also 34, has had 10 charges approved. And Brent William Van Buskirk, 35, who was on parole for a 2004 murder conviction at the time of his arrest, is facing 13 charges. All relate to possession and trafficking in a controlled substance and firearm offenses. This is a a strong reminder to those that are actively involved in criminal activities and criminal enterprises uh, that the police departments uh, here locally and and also our integrated units and our partnerships throughout the province of BC uh, that we will stop at nothing. Aside from the drugs, 20 firearms were seized, along with nearly $400,000 in cash and three luxury vehicles. Police say the operation that had ties to the Lower Mainland was only fueling the opioid crisis in the province, pushing the death toll to record numbers. And I think it's important that we work together with all of our partners uh, in doing whatever we can to detect, disrupt, investigate and to prosecute. The hope is the arrests send a message, not just to the criminals who believe they can get away with it, but to the public as well. We will not stand for anybody coming into our community and risking the safety of our citizens. Kylie Stanton, Global News. And in a separate bust, Ridge Meadows RCMP are showing off the biggest fentanyl seizure in their history. The Mounties say this was the result of a seven-month investigation that began in June of last year. Police searched properties in Maple Ridge and New Westminster and seized more than six kilograms of fentanyl, amounting to 63,000 doses. They also found suspected crack and powder cocaine, methamphetamine, a handgun with ammunition, body armor, and $31,000 in cash. A man and a woman are in custody. No names have been released. Well, plenty of questions today surrounding BC's expanded vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. Some say they have been offered little guidance as to how this will work, while others are worried about the staff shortages this may cause. Richard Zussman has more. It is something more than 40,000 healthcare workers in BC have been waiting for. It's kind of like those wily coyote cartoons where the anvil is above the cliff and waiting for it to fall. That anvil officially dropping March 24th. The weight it carries for the dentists, dental hygienists, chiropractors, and many more who need to provide proof of vaccination by that day, still unclear, with rumors dropping as well. That is everything from on the 25th. Everyone is automatically suspended if they haven't uploaded their information to say they've been vaccinated, to it will be a complaints-based process. There is still no written order. Dental hygienists support mandatory vaccine, but there are worries. For example, dental hygienists are vaccinated at a rate of 90% for 4,500 workers. So even if the mandate boosts that up 5%, there will still be around two to 300 people potentially out of a job. What do you do if you have three dental hygienists and you find out suddenly that two of them are no longer allowed to practice? Um, And what do you do? Well, That whole idea of suspending people without pay is very different in in a private practice. 
it's impossible to actually get the vaccination rates for those getting paid outside of the healthcare system but working inside of it. For example, the dental hygienists say about 10% of their members are not vaccinated, but 30% oppose the mandate. That number could be even higher among naturopaths who historically have had more questions around the efficacy of vaccines. I think overwhelmingly uh, they'll want to be part of uh, the healthcare response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Multiple calls to the Naturopath Association of BC unanswered Thursday, the mandates playing to the larger issue of misinformation. The doctors of BC advocating for a crackdown of those who spread falsehoods. We worry about the harm that could come to patients if they follow this advice that is faulty and even wrong. A misinformation and truly lies have been spread that causes fear that leads to people not taking preventive action, not protecting themselves. A clear message, these health care vaccine mandates will exist far beyond the pandemic. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And here's a look at the latest COVID-19 numbers for BC. There are 867 people in hospital. 138 of those patients are in the ICU. We have recorded five more deaths from complications of the virus. And there are 1,318 new cases reported in this province. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry for more. Our numbers, Keith, appear to be getting better, mm -hmm. especially when you compare them to where we were in January. Yeah, January may have been the peak of some of the worst uh, health indicators associated with COVID-19. The Center for Disease Control releasing its weekly report today that provides a summary of the most severe illness in January. Let's take a look at the numbers. First of all, the number of deaths was quite high. 203 people died in January from COVID-19 or with COVID-19. Uh, 306 ICU cases, that's a very high number. 2,504 were in hospital and 20% of the deaths are under the age of 70. I was going to make that 80% were over the age of 70, but I think it's illustrative that young people can still experience the worst form of illness associated with COVID-19, and that, of course, is passing away from it. Good news is the hospitalizations for the last week have started to decline. Uh, we were tracking about 110 a day for a number of days. Yesterday, I think, the, or from yesterday to today, the number is less than 100. So on a daily basis, the hospitalizations seem to be going down. The daily case numbers are going down, and that all points to good news. And perhaps on Tuesday, a relaxation of some of the restrictions. A lot of people hoping for that, for sure. All right, thanks, Keith. Right. A new poll done for the BC Pharmacy Association has found more than half of British Columbians who have already rolled up their sleeves for two doses of COVID vaccine are hesitant to get a booster. Aaron MacArthur has more on the findings and why people say they aren't getting that third shot. A steady stream of people at the convention centre Thursday. The B.C. government reporting around 20,000 vaccinations every day. To date, 2.3 million British Columbians have been given a third shot. And while that number is growing, there are signs it's slowing down. More than 800,000 invitations have been sent, but not booked. It's definitely concerning and People are definitely questioning getting their booster dose. The BC Pharmacy Association polled British Columbians on their vaccination status. Of people with two doses, only 44% say they will get that third shot right away. 25% say they'll wait until later. And 18% say they won't get it at all. I think a lot of people's idea that 
the vaccine was supposed to be a cure is in their head when it's it's really not it's 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 a protection against severe disease and getting into the hospital and the reasons behind the hesitancy vary widely 41 percent of this subset say two shots is enough fully a third worry about long-term side effects and 27 percent just want their normal lives back Health Minister Adrian Dix was asked if the messaging from government needs to change. We can do better and the poll is useful. It informs us of that. I think it's critical for people to know what the impact, particularly on their risk of serious outcomes from COVID-19 is. Booster shots are now available for everyone over 12, six months after the second dose. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The B.C. government has made the province's circuit breaker business relief grant program more inclusive. Under the program, businesses in the hospitality and fitness sectors were eligible for a grant of up to $10,000 to help cushion the blow of closures due to public health orders. But as Global News has reported, some fitness facilities like Port Coquitlam's Function Health Club were ruled ineligible because they opened for limited hours to provide programming for kids. Well, now the rules are being amended to include those operations in the grant program. The program we had, as we had structured it, uh, precluded them from getting support. So now they are able to get financial supports. Of course, this is limited to businesses that uh, remained open to provide supports for youth and not businesses who were defying health orders. In all, that grant program will cost about $10 million. Applications for the grants close at the end of the month. Well, if there is one industry that's been particularly hard hit by COVID protocols, it's travel and tourism. And a group of infectious disease doctors and members of the travel industry are now calling on the federal government to loosen the reins on travel. Global's Shalima Maharaj has more. I think that it's, it's just too big a risk. Anjali Beishwal and a group of other parents had been planning a spring getaway for their kids who are in high school, a much-needed reprieve from the uncertainty of the last couple of years. The biggest fear is that they will, uh, the testing may come back positive. It's very easy to test positive. And then what happens? Will they be stranded there? Travelers coming to Canada have to provide a pre-arrival negative molecular test result. Once they arrive, anyone flying in from a country other than the U.S. is tested again and must isolate until they get the results. Travel restrictions and testing at the border is not going uh, to prevent COVID from staying here in Canada. Dr. Dominic Mertz is among those calling on the federal government to loosen up restrictions. When 10 to 30 percent of your local population already got COVID-19 over the last two months, it really, you know, becomes a little bit futile to try to prevent it coming over the border. Infectious diseases physician Dr. Zane Chagla calls the tests being used out of date. We're the only G7 nation that, that requires PCR testing as part of their, their entry. Teacher Stephanie Manikas has already had one trip cancelled due to the pandemic. She and her colleagues had been hoping to travel over March break, but they too are put off by the mandatory PCR testing and having to miss work while in isolation. I can go to the grocery store and be around people who are probably positive, people who are definitely unvaccinated, but I can't go on my trip for my mental health. Manikas, who is fully vaccinated, has already had to pivot for work a lot during the pandemic. What are we gonna do, go for one day and then come back because it might take us six days to get the results? Shalima Maharaj, Global News. A missing person found safe and sound.
It's February 9th, and I was like, hey, I've been gone for three months. How Bear Henry survived more than 70 days in the wilderness, next on the NewsHour. Well, don't let her age fool you. At 97 years young, Betty Brussel is a fierce competitor in the pool. Her winning attitude that made her a master's champ later. Plus, why starting tomorrow, the famous 9 o'clock gun will be silenced. And it's not clear for how long. Right now, though, no shortage of talk tonight about an apparently miraculous survival story. A Ferry Creek logging protester found alive after being missing for more than two months. Paul Johnson has the latest on Bear Henry and talks to an expert about how to survive in the frigid wilderness. What day is it? And they're like, it's Tuesday. I'm like, what month is it? And they're like, it's February 9th. And I was like, hey, I've been gone for three months. And I'm like, Reported missing in late November. 37-year-old Bear Henry says they survived more than two months in the wild, taking shelter in their van and surviving off of a cache of beans and peanut butter until loggers found them Wednesday. This is an incredible tale, that's for sure. Sandra Riches is the executive director of the BC Adventure Smart Program and says in her 30 years of wilderness survival work, this is among the most miraculous stories she's seen. And it's a reminder for British Columbians that if you're heading into the woods, just because you can drive there doesn't mean you don't need to make thorough plans. We can be fooled by easy access. And what it does is it can often give us a false sense of security. And uh, when, when adventures, big or small, are easy to get to, people forget to plan as much. At the time of their disappearance, Bear was on their way to the Ferry Creek Old Growth Logging Protests, happening in mountainous terrain east of Port Renfrew that is rugged and steep. Friends of Bear's told Global News Bear crashed their van and got stuck in a place that was outside the area where searchers ended up looking for them. And Bear's disappearance isn't the first. 61-year-old Gerald Kearney, also a Ferry Creek protester, went missing in the area October 13th, and there's still no sign of him. It's great to hear that Bear is home safe and sound. Though many will be curious about Bear's survival techniques and luck, clearly one of the people most surprised by this astonishing survival tale is Bear himself. I'm like, I have no backcountry like, experience whatsoever. I'm like, no, I think you do now. I was like, oh my God, you're right. I totally do. I was like, I'm never going back there again. <laughs> Paul Johnson, Global News. Well, police say foul play is not suspected after two people were found dead inside a vehicle in a Saanich parking lot. The bodies were spotted at around 9 a.m. in the lot in the former Mount Tolmy Hospital. That building is being used as a homeless shelter. Shelter residents tell Global News the pair had been sleeping in the vehicle and a gas generator can still be seen in the front seat of the car. Saanich police and the B.C. Coroner Service are investigating the deaths. Coming up, tenants facing demoviction. I just want to make sure my kids have a safe place to lay their heads at night. How an affordable housing redevelopment will force out the residents who need it the most. Also ahead, the slow road to recovery in flood-ravaged merit. No more delays for eastbound traffic on Highway 1 near Kensington. There's still a crash night right next door on Canada Way, but as an alternate route, Highway 1 is east right off. Best-in-class protection 
Kermac Cares for Kids Expert Repair for Your Vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC in partnership with Pacific Blue Cross, flexible small business health benefits for challenging times. Residents of an affordable housing complex in Vancouver say their homes are about to be bulldozed and they won't be able to afford rent in the replacement building. As Rumi Nadea reports, the future of the Alma Blackwell complex illustrates how challenging the problems and solutions have become as BC grapples with the housing affordability crisis. Lodge. All right. Michelle and Matt Chenoweth trying to remain unbreakable for their children, but cracks are surfacing. Fear. I don't want to cry. Okay, just speaking the truth. I don't want to cry. My babies grew up here. This is the only home they've ever known. The East Vancouver teachers and their two teens, Summer and Elijah, are being evicted from their home of almost 17 years. Why would someone in their right mind destroy such a close-knit community like this? The plan to bulldoze 46 affordable homes and rebuild. Six stories, 90 new social housing units. Demolition, the only option, says BC Housing, because the building, only 36 years old, is beyond repair due to water damage. I don't believe them. The housing minister says building owner, non-profit, Entre Nufem Housing Society, is offering existing tenants the first chance to return. If you have a higher income, there may be additional charges, but this will still be affordable housing for all the people who are currently there. Returning to a similar unit? Impossible, say many families. The Chenowitz rent will more than double from $1,500 a month to over $3,200. We can't do it. I mean, we're two professionals. We live in Vancouver. We, it's not livable at this point. So what do we do? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. but like I said, as an Indigenous family, we, displacement doesn't shock us, you know, and uh, hope none of them wear an orange shirt. That's all I say. Taxpayers are funding the redevelopment, but the government won't tell us how much the contract is worth because the deal hasn't been finalized. ENF will soon be applying for a redevelopment permit. Ultimately, it will be up to the city of Vancouver to decide. Is the city going to grant the permit? You'll have to check with BC Housing about their plans for the residents. That's not what I'm asking. The city grants the permit at the end of the day. Are you going to do it? which will leave these people without a home. Again, you're going to have to check with BC Housing about their plans for the residents. One by one, this sacred community is being relocated by ENF. A demolition date has not been set. Don't take away our homes. Don't take away our homes. (laughs) Don't don't throw us out the cold. Romina Dea, Global News. It's been nearly three months since thousands of Merritt residents were forced to leave their homes when the Coldwater River flooded the city. Hundreds of residents have yet to return home, and today some of them shared their frustrations with Global's Darian Matassa-Fung. 
My home, yes, I have heat and electricity right now, but I have no sewer. I have no water. Displaced Merritt residents are frustrated with the recovery process, saying not only has it been slow, but confusing and stressful. We need support for the elderly, we need support for those that are handicapped, and we need those that have been taken out of their homes. While there is support being given by both the City of Merritt and Canadian Red Cross, many residents believed emergency funding for their temporary accommodation was ending on February 15th. Red Cross did announce this morning that it will be extending the emergency funding for displaced residents until March 31st. The residents say they are grateful for the extension. However, have serious concerns with the communication between themselves, Red Cross and the City of Merritt. How would you describe the, the, the communication? Very poor. Um, I've been phoning numbers and all I get is answer machine, answer machine, answer machine. Um, I've left messages, a lot of times I haven't been phoned back. Um, I don't think this is right. One resident whose mobile home was completely gutted says living in a hotel since November has been tough and that she is not sure if she will be able to return to her hotel suite after the 15th. The hotels were informed three days ago that the funding was stopping and they have been booking those rooms to essential workers that want to come in and do the work. The City of Merritt's mayor was unavailable for an interview, but their recovery manager did speak to Global News. It's incredible. I can't imagine what the people have gone through, and, and they remain our priority. We've set up uh, as many communication platforms as we can, so we've developed the community newsletter for recovery. We've uh, gone onto Facebook. We've got the Twitter feeds. Close to 200 properties still remain on evacuation order. Darian Matassafung, Global News, Merritt. Residents of communities on the northwest corner of Okanagan Lake that were devastated by fires last summer are now being warned about another possible danger. The White Rock Lake wildfire ripped through several neighborhoods on Westside Road, leaving a trail of destruction. Months later, many residents still have no homes to return to. As they begin the process of rebuilding, the residents are being told some fire impacts could still be yet to come, flooding or landslides. We know that when fires burn really hot, that the soils react in a certain way that makes it easy for that water to come off. So if we get a really uh, bad snow, snow year or we have a couple of big rain events in the spring, we really need people to be keeping an eye on the hills above them. Hopefully, um, you know, everybody will pay attention to potential dangers and uh, act at them uh, accordingly. As they struggle to rebuild, residents are also dealing with the increasing price of materials and the fact that construction companies and crews are already busy. Just ahead, justice on the line. We need the best prosecutors on those types of cases. BC citizens deserve that. BC Crown lawyers lay out their case for a new contract. Why they warn major cases could be at risk. Also ahead, a favorite food of kids everywhere. A warning about a certain brand of chicken nuggets next. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel. That's bad timing because there is a stall northbound at the north end of the tunnel in the right lane. So expect delays out of Delta. Get best in class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. 
The association that represents B.C.'s Crown lawyers says the government is risking driving prosecutors out of the justice system if it sticks to a contentious contract demand. And as Neetu Garcha reports, it's warning that could give criminals the upper hand in court. Cases such as the Surrey Six, the Maple Battaglia case, Air India, the high-profile, complex, complicated trials. We need the best prosecutors on those types of cases. But BC is at risk of losing those seasoned lawyers, says longtime Crown Prosecutor Wendy Stephen and BC Crown Council Association President Kevin Marks. BC citizens deserve a fair fight. BC prosecutors deserve a fair contract. A message from the BC Crown Council Association. Frustrated amid deadlocked contract negotiations with the B.C. government, this week they took their message to the radio, launching an ad campaign. Prosecutors don't want a new deal. They want the province to honour the one they already have. The biggest issue, they say, is linkage. That means the lawyer's salary increases are linked to those of a provincial court judge's salary, which can cap at about $282,000 per year, of which prosecutors are promised up to 85%, amounting to just under $240,000 for the province's top lawyers. We fear that senior prosecutors, they're going to start leaving. And junior prosecutors will leave as well. The writing's on the wall. Why would they stay? That salary structure was negotiated back in 2007, leading to more than a decade of labour peace. But this month marks three years of a stalemate between the two sides after that contract expired in March of 2019. In Alberta, not too long ago, they froze everybody's salaries. Then they brought in new people who were getting more money than the people who had their their uh, salaries frozen. So people left. Well, we have 475 prosecutors, so it infects every single prosecutor. BC's Minister of Finance not agreeing to an interview, but in a statement saying the province values the work of BC's Crown Council, adding it's best not to comment on bargaining matters while negotiations are outstanding. Our job is to protect the public. That's our number one priority and to ensure that justice is done. But these prosecutors say it will be the British Columbians they represent in court who will end up dealing with the cost of the proposed salary cuts. Neetu Garcha, Global News, Vancouver. In Health Matters tonight, we've got a food safety warning to tell you about. Hampton House brand chicken nuggets are being recalled due to possible salmonella. The nuggets are sold in B.C. They come in a three-kilogram bag. If you have any of them, you are asked to throw them out or you can return them to the store for a refund. Just ahead, opposition grows to a major port expansion. Need to support our federal scientists. Why the effort to make more room at Roberts Bank is running into fierce criticism. Plus, no 9 o'clock gun for now. Why the Stanley Park landmark is being silenced. A deadline is looming for a final decision on one of two projects at Roberts Bank Terminal in Delta. But the city of Delta has come out this week against the controversial expansion due to environmental concerns. Ted Trenecki has more. There's a steady stream of container-carrying rail cars going into Delta Port and trucks coming up. But the port needs more room. And there are two proposals on the board on how to expand. You might have seen this ad. 
Just one saying, something is looming on the shores of Roberts Bank in Delta. It's produced by opponents to the Vancouver Port Authority's plan to spend about $3.5 billion to build an island for a second terminal. But today, 12 scientists released a letter saying the environmental damage would be irreparable. We need to support our federal scientists. They are the ones that I listen to. The Monday, Delta City Council voted unanimously to urge Ottawa to reject the project. Why are we always concentrating down in Vancouver area? Maybe the investment should go up in, into the Prudence Rupert area. Totally different area up there. Uh, and it's actually quicker when you look in so far as the, the routing. I and my council are saying... No. But the Port Authority believes it can meet all environmental concerns and the project is still evolving. The location of our terminal is based on the advice of the Government of Canada over many years. So in the early 2000s, we looked at expansions closer to the shore and were told to move the the terminal into deep water, which is exactly what we've done. There's another proposal by Global Container Terminals, the tenants who currently lease Roberts Bank from the Port Authority. In the last decade, it's already invested about a half billion dollars at Roberts Bank. Including $180 million in 2010 to add a third berth to the terminal, and $300 million in 2018 to create the world's first semi-automated intermodal rail yard. But now it's proposing a fourth berth with a smaller footprint that would have an environmental impact. It believes it can almost double the port's capacity and do it with private money. Any amount of the $3.5 billion expected from Ottawa, it says, could better be spent elsewhere. That should be invested into infrastructure off-terminal, the the road and rail access, resiliency and redundancy to our supply chain. So if there's a fire or a flood or a landslide, that our terminals can still receive trucks and trains and let the private sector invest in terminal capacity as historically as uh, has been done. Public submissions have been extended until mid-March for anyone or against the Vancouver and Fraser Port Authority's application. Ted Chernecki, Global News. All right, time to check in with meteorologist Christy Gordon now for a look at our forecast. And we're beginning with a warning tonight, Christy. We sure are. So uh, over the next couple of days, we've been advertising sunshine. Looks like it's going to transpire right across the province. And what it does is it prompts a warning from Avalanche Canada. Not only are we going to see warmth, sunshine, lots of people getting in the backcountry, but also there's some concern in the snowpack. So here's a look. Avalanche warning continues or is extended from the Sea to Sky through the south coast inland sections, Kootenai Boundary, south and north Columbia, the Purcells, the Caribou. So quite a large range across the province. And here's the big concern is in most of these regions, there's a weak layer at about 60 centimeters, and that means that there's a potential for very large avalanches because it's so deep, but it's also shallow enough that it could be uh, triggered by humans or machines. They also say that the most active uh, region is in that tree line, and then where it opens up to the alpine, so where the trees start to thin, and that tends to be an area where a lot of people go. Here's Sandra right now from Adventure Smart, who partners with Avalanche Canada for her take on this weekend the best decision could say could be to save it for another day save it for another weekend uh, if all of this aligns where it is dangerous hazardous uh, unstable and you're unaware or unsure save it and don't go 
Yeah, so keep yourself safe this weekend. Enjoy the warmth and sunshine, but maybe stay in more safer areas. Uh, looking at tomorrow for the south coast, we are expecting fog, but the good news is it doesn't look like that fog inversion layer is going to develop because we're going to see enough of an outflow wind to disperse that fog. So we may see patchy fog, especially near the Strait of Georgia and through the morning hours, but then we can enjoy sunshine throughout the afternoon. Highs are going to be well above seasonal and through the interior for our region, 9 to 11 degrees, Sophie Sosa sensational weather and will looks like we'll hold that through the weekend. Sorry, we slipped right past a five-day forecast, but the next bout of rain is not expected until Sunday night. Here's tonight's central windows weather window for you from Boundary Bay. Beautiful shot. Uh, very artistic sorry, shot from Peter. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that one. Thank you, Christy. Well, one of Vancouver's most iconic symbols will soon be silenced. Tonight may be your last chance to hear the 9 o'clock gun for a while. Starting tomorrow, the firing will be temporarily paused due to a shortage of black powder. The park board says the gunpowder is in short supply around the world because, of course, those supply chain struggles and a decrease in production. Park board staff are looking for alternatives so the gun can sound again as soon as possible. We do not have a time frame for that. We're working with five separate suppliers, and as soon as we can get some powder, we will put it back in action. The last time the 9 o'clock gun stopped firing was back in October when a large tree fell over and damaged the shed where the cannon charges are prepared. All these things I didn't know about the 9 o'clock gun. I think I did a story on the 9 o'clock gun a number of years ago. And you hear it at 9 o'clock usually. You do. And that's very, you know, that, that's, that's good. It could, it could have been a 3 a.m. gun and just oh, woke no, everybody up. don't want that. You don't want that. All right, Cami uh, Granato. Yes, the Canucks hired Cami Granato as an assistant GM today. She was a scout with Seattle before she took this job. And since she lives here year-round, she knows a lot about the Canucks. I'm walking in knowing a lot about the team because I did scout the, uh, sorry, the Canucks a lot um, over, the, over the course of time with the Kraken. She's a Hockey Hall of Famer too from a hockey family and she'll uh, oversee the Canucks scouting and player development. And later, a 97-year-old making a splash in competitive swimming. More changes with the Canucks Squire. They keep adding mm -hmm. and adding. Well, that's what Jim Rutherford said. He wanted a diverse group of voices, and he certainly has that. The Vancouver Canucks added Hall of Famer Cami Granato to their front office today, a front office that is growing faster than the Islanders' first period lead grew last night. But this is another solid hiring. Granato will oversee player development and scouting with the Canucks, a team she knows very well, considering she lives here and she was recently scouting for the Seattle Crack. And the Granato family is all about hockey. Her brother Tony played for years in the NHL. He coaches at the University of Wisconsin. Her other brother Don coaches the Buffalo Sabres. Her husband Ray Ferraro was a player for years, now a broadcaster. Cami is somebody who knows the game and lives the game. Back comes Granato, shot scores! Cami Granato's used to scoring goals and achieving her goals. She is one of the great female hockey players of all time, which was recognized in 2010 when she and Angela James were the first women to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. And she also became the NHL's first female pro scout when she was hired a couple of years ago by the Seattle Kraken. And now another ice-breaking moment hired by the Canucks to be in charge of player development and the team's amateur and pro scouting departments. 
just goes to show Jim's vision to sort of diversify, get different voices, get different uh, people's experience and draw them together. Um, so I think it's, it's something to celebrate uh, looking at two women on a, on a management team. It really is. But at, on the other hand, you know, maybe this conversation will change in um, 10 years. It won't be a big deal or five years. It won't be a big deal when, when other teams do the same. Granado joins Emily Castongay on the Canucks management team who value the fact they will be heard. And I really love that idea that we can all work together just uh, on a flat level together and, and share all our ideas. And that's really, really exciting. And I think a, a super healthy way to, uh, to run a team. Last night, of course, the Canucks went down 5 nothing in the first period to the Islanders, lost 6-3. to And yes, goalie Yaroslav Halak played like he really wasn't there. But Bruce Boudreau isn't blaming him because all the Canucks didn't really show up until late in the first period, too late to come back. It's a problem we have seen before with this team. We talk about self-preparation all the time and uh, uh, coming to the game ready to play. And uh, usually an NHL game, it's an all-day thing. It's not just coming to the game, putting your skates on and saying, let's go. you got to prepare the right way mentally for the game. And uh, we obviously weren't there the last two games. Uh, So that has to get better. So after losing to Chicago last night, the Edmonton Oilers finally fired head coach Dave Tippett and replaced him with Jay Woodcroft, who was coaching their farm team in Bakersfield. Uh, After getting off to a great start, 16-5, although Edmonton pretty much got that because of a great power play, they have been terrible. And even though the Oilers probably need a new goalie more than a new coach, they did need some kind of a change, and today they made one. Okay. Waste Management Phoenix Open, that's the famous 16th hole with uh, 20,000 well-lubricated fans. And this is Abbotsford's Adam Hadwin on the 16th for the bird. Oh, the crowd loves him. He had a good finish to the first round today. Here's another look. There you see. If you do something good, they cheer you. If you miss the green, you are roundly booed. Very next hole, another birdie. Shot a 566. Five birdies in a six-hole span. He's tied for second. One back of the leader, K.H. Lee. Canada's men's national soccer team now ranked 33rd in the world, the highest ever since FIFA started this ranking system in 1992. Now, the reason Canada has risen in the rankings is because the way we have dominated World Cup qualifying and wins over the U.S. and Mexico have helped as well. Taking a look at the medal standings, Austria, ooh, their flag turned out kind of strange there. Uh, They have the most medals with 13, Canada with 12. That's a great start. We're getting medals in some sports we didn't expect to get medals in. And uh, Canada's men's hockey team won 5-1 over Germany today. All right. Thanks, Squire. Up next, a White Rock woman not afraid to dive into the deep end, how she's outswimming the seniors around her. Just a number. Betty Brussel is 97 years old and a competitive swimmer with a boatload of medals. As Jay Durant tells us, her dive into the sport didn't come until much later in life. I don't know where these are from. You'll have to forgive Betty Brussel. It's hard to keep track. Two, four. She has a bag full of swim medals she can barely lift. (laughs) Most of them are gold. She's usually standing on top of the podium. But what's really impressive is the fact she didn't start swimming competitively until she was 68. I am a late bloomer, yes. Betty grew up with her 11 siblings just north of Amsterdam. That's her on the right. 
They learned to swim in this canal, taking the plunge any chance they could get. Gone out at 7 o'clock in the morning before I went to work and just swam in the canal and it, man, it was cold. She could never have guessed that one day she would set two world records at master's meets. Pretty good. I was quite happy with that, yeah. That was really, really nice. Life's getting busy for Betty again. Twice a week, she drives herself to the pool to train. There's still a lot of work to do. Her goal in life is to make it to 100 and to break all the world records in the 100 to 104 age group. She has suffered a heart attack, broke both feet, cracked a vertebra in a bad fall, and had an operation on her shoulder. None of it has stopped her. I always, when I'm recovered, I go back. I got to rest a little bit too, you know. I'm an old lady. <laughs> Quiet time is a little more typical for someone her age. Her other hobby isn't nearly as demanding. But there are still medals to win and records to break. Just in case you were wondering how much longer Betty Brussel will keep coming to the pool. Always. Always. I feel the... I feel always the best when I'm swimming. Jay Durant, Global News. And here's a tongue twister. Betty Brussels breaststroke. Say it 10 times fast. If you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Betty Brussels breaststroke. Add in beautiful. Betty Brussels beautiful breaststroke. Yes. (laughs) All right, quick word on the weather, Christy. Sure. So sunshine over the next three days. We'll see some patchy fog in the morning, but we should actually be able to enjoy that sunshine. No rain until Valentine's Day. Back to you guys. All right. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great night. Thanks 